there are some verses of Scripture, some passages uh, that generations of people have memorized. Passages like Psalm 23 uh, that have been a comfort to many throughout history in times of darkness and difficulty. Uh, John 3.16, memorized because of its clarity. And this morning is another passage like that, Ephesians 2. We're going to look at verses 8 and 9, but verses 8 through 10, I think in all of the Bible, these verses are just unmatched in their clarity and their importance with regard to salvation. It's incredibly clear and incredibly important, this matter of salvation. So uh, (laughs) uh, as a preacher, uh, I, I told David this morning, this is kind of like the sermon I prepare my whole life for. And if I, if I want to make sure I don't mess something up, I don't want to mess this up. So I'm going to pray again that I don't mess this up. So let's pray together. God, I do recognize need for your help, God, and your spirit, empowerment, and enablement for all things. And Lord, I just pray that this would be clear. And God, you'd give us clarity of thought and understanding of salvation, that we'd be profoundly affected by what your word says, and God, that you would teach us in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the scripture says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My wife, being the amazing woman she is, saved up money for months without my knowing it and bought us a trip to Italy. Uh, I got to study Roman history and I love Roman history and always wanted to go to Rome and she surprised me with a trip. And uh, we went and uh, one of the most striking things, uh, one of the most memorable things and not for a good reason, uh, was the, the Puerta Sancta, which I have a picture of the Puerta Sancta, I think, for you to see. The, the Puerta Sancta is at the Vatican uh, in Rome. And our tour guide, when he explained it, to him it was kind of a joke, um, just the way he explained it. And to me it's profoundly sad. Um, but the, the Puerta Sancta essentially is a door at the Vatican that is only opened once every 25 years. Once every 25 years, this door is opened and and what's called a special indulgence is given. And according to Roman Catholicism and the Pope, anyone who walks through this door on that day will be forgiven of all their sins. The Puerta Sancta, which means holy door. Every 25 years opened And anybody who walks through it, forgiven of all their sins. And and the saddest part of this came in the tour guide was explaining this to us and said that that week in Rome leading up to that, what they call it's a day of jubilee, that week in Rome is the biggest week for partying ever. That people come from all over the world, use that as their time to come and visit Rome because they can essentially live it up in their minds, do whatever they want to do, And then this door is open and all they've got to do is walk through this door and they receive grace and that they're saved. That is so opposite of what the Bible clearly 
says that you're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's why of all of the doctrines in the Bible, it's so important to understand salvation. That in a sense, this is at the heart of the message of the Bible, the message of salvation, of, of God saving, God saving. And here we have Paul the Apostle explaining to Christians, here's how you're saved. Here's how you're saved. And it's so clear and so simple. Notice it in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. First of all, to understand salvation, which is something we want to understand. We need to understand you're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. Notice the first word there, for. When you're reading your Bible and you see the word for, you see it's built off of a previous thought. So if you go back to verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved. So this is saying God wants to demonstrate, he wants to show his grace. He wants to show his kindness, and he does that in saving us. And, and here is, I think, the, the clearest explanation, the simplest explanation of our salvation is, for by grace you have been saved. And that's an emphasis here in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 and chapter 2, over and over again, you see reference to grace. Earlier in chapter 2, if you look at verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. It's the same phrase. This is at the heart of our understanding of salvation, that we're saved by grace. Grace is the kind favor of God that he gives, not on the basis of anything that we do, anything that we are, not on what we are, not on what we do, it's the kind favor of God given. It's the fountainhead of salvation. It's the fountainhead of salvation. Or what we call in West Virginia, the headwaters. The headwaters are the source of a river. You can go to places and see the headwaters and literally water is just coming up out of the ground. That's what grace is like to salvation. And if you could think of it as a river, the headwaters are the beginning of the river is grace. And then it goes out and there's other tributaries that come off of it or other little rivers that come off of it like reconciliation, justification, forgiveness. There's all these aspects of salvation. But at the heart of it, the beginning of it is grace. You're saved by grace, the grace of God, the kindness of God given to us despite anything in of us, despite what we've done, not on the basis of what we do. It's like the foundation of a building. The foundation is grace, and without the foundation, the building won't stand. It's the reason for salvation, the grace of God. It's the reason God sent his son, because of his love, because of his grace. We're saved by grace. Secondly, notice, if you're going to understand salvation, not only do you understand that salvation is by grace, but you understand salvation is through faith. So you're saved by grace, you're saved through faith. Now here's another emphasis all through the Bible, the emphasis of faith. An understanding or an explanation of salvation without explaining or understanding faith is deficient. It goes all the way back 
in the emphasis of Scripture, in, in, in the revelation of God describing what he's doing. You see it in Abraham so clearly. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. He believed God. You see it all through the Gospels. Just, just look at the Gospels and, and study the Gospels with an eye toward where does Jesus emphasize faith? And you'll find it all through them. I, I found it this week. In my reading through the Gospels right now, I mean, this week we read Luke chapter 7. And this is the, the account where Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house. And there's a notorious sinner there, this woman who's known to be a notorious sinner and she's at Jesus' feet weeping and wiping his feet with her hair as she weeps. And so the question becomes, why is she at Jesus' feet and why is she weeping? Which the text doesn't explain. It just leaves you to kind of make the inference. But as you walk through it, you see that Jesus uses it as an opportunity to expose to the Pharisee his misunderstanding of salvation and why this woman is doing what she's doing. And then the last verse in that text seals it and explains why the woman is there. Why in the world is she weeping at Jesus' feet? It's because she knows she's a sinner and she knows Jesus can do something about it. And Jesus highlights this in the last verse, Luke 7 and verse 50, when he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's why she went to him. She knew that Jesus was the one who could forgive her. You'll find it all through John's gospel. This, in fact, is John's intent. The reason John wrote his gospel is so that people will believe, so that people will have faith. You find it all through the book of Acts as the command in the preaching of the apostles to believe. This is why the most important thing I have to call you to do today is to believe, to believe, to trust Jesus. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean that it's through faith? Well, I think it's helpful to understand faith in two ways. Number one, it be, it's knowing. It's knowing. You have to know some things before you believe them. And here what you know and what's revealed by God in his word is the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And that he was raised again from the dead. You have to know that to be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There's some things you have to know. But knowing in and of itself is insufficient. That by itself is not faith. That's required for faith. And I believe part of faith. But that's not all there is to it. Because as James exposes, and James, one of the things he wants to do in his letter, little letter is expose wrong or false or deceptive faith. And he says, even the demons believe and tremble. There's a, there's a faith that the demons have, and their faith is knowledge. They, they know more about Jesus and God than anyone in this room, most likely. But they don't believe in Jesus. So faith is knowing, but it's also trusting. It's a dependence. The faith is an attitude of the heart. In fact, this is why it's, it's the exact opposite attitude of, of doing or works. Faith, by definition, is I recognize I can't do it. And therefore, I trust another, Jesus, who did it, who died on the cross for my sins. I can't bring myself to God. I'm unable. I'm unable. Another must bring me. And that's why Jesus came. And our faith is in him. 
and in his work. Or I think one of the most important exercises you can do is take your Bible and and read Romans chapters 3 and 4 and highlight or underline every reference to faith or belief. And you're going to find over and over again in explaining salvation, faith and belief is at the heart of how you're saved or made righteous before God. So it's an emphasis and it's an essential. It's knowing, it's trusting, it's dependence, it's confidence in another, it's confidence in Jesus, you're saved by grace, you're saved through faith. Now carrying it on to understand salvation, not only do you understand you're saved by grace, you're saved through faith, but you understand you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now you saw what I did there. I just added a couple little words, the word alone, which is a a historic formulation or explanation of what the Bible teaches about Christian salvation. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And by alone, I mean not coming from you, not coming from your works. Look what the passage says in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. The alone meaning, meaning it's not of your doing. It's not a result of works. So what we have in this passage, in this jewel in the Bible, is you have how God saves us by grace through faith and how God does not save us, your own doing by your works. And notice those two statements are parallel. It is not your own doing, not of works. Those are the two negative statements. So we don't want to think of our salvation or the grace God gives or faith in terms of what we do or our work. So for instance, salvation, now by the way, let's just break down the phrase before we move any further. You are saved by grace through faith. I'm sorry, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. The this refers back to all of that statement that comes before it. Grace saved through faith. All of that is not your own doing. All of it is not your own doing. Which makes sense in the light of the rest of Ephesians 2, which began with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. None of this is your own doing. It's not from within. Grace does not come from within you. Faith is not from within you. It's not from within. Notice, again, the Scripture, what it says, which is most important. This is not your own doing. So, salvation by grace through faith, not your own doing. It's not an achievement. It's it's not as if you're trying to do something. And then now that you've done something, God gives you something in return. That would be achievement. It's not an award. Like we gave out at the Fall Fest, an award for shooting the longest water balloon. You shoot it the furthest, you get something for that. That's an award for an achievement that you've earned. Because in that case of your ability to shoot the water balloon. That's not how salvation is. It is not your own doing. It's not a transaction. There's no transaction here. 
There's no cooperation here. There's not, you do this much, and then God does this much. It's not like, it's on you, you do this, and then when you do that, God will respond by doing this. It's by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. This is not your own doing. Now, a little more explanation on that. Any addition of our own doing or our own works distorts grace. Any addition of adding what I do or what I've done or my work distorts the meaning of grace. And this is what Paul tells the Jews in Romans eleven six, who were captive to this thought and this process and this understanding of coming before God based on their works. Look at what Romans eleven six says. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If you do something and then based on your doing, God gives you this, that's not grace is what he's saying. It's not that. It's by grace alone, and the alone means apart from your doing, apart from your works. It's by faith alone, which means faith is not your own doing. Faith is not a work. Let's talk about that for a minute. Faith is not of yourselves. Look at what Philippians 1 says. Philippians 1.29 and its explanation, its description of the Christian life and how we're supposed to live and, and why we live that way because of salvation. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you. Now there's going to be two things in this verse that are granted to you. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. There's some, there are two things granted by God to Christians. Believe and suffer. And you know what? As a Christian, do you, ever, do you know why you continue to believe? Why are you still believing today? Why are you believing in Jesus? Well, many of you, some of you probably have memorized the fruit of the Spirit. It's a great text. I love it. They put it in artwork now. I think it's great artwork. When they put it, Scripture in art and there's the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, incidentally, the word fruit's singular. So all these things are a fruit, an evidence of the Spirit in you. One of them is faith. Some of the translations misrepresent it and say faithfulness. That's not accurate. It's the word faith. And it's in the life of a believer. That's an evidence, a work of the Spirit in you. Faith. The fruit of the Spirit is faith. The Spirit is at work in you, and you have, and continue to have faith. You're continuing to be saved and live the Christian life isn't based on you. It's based on the power of the Spirit of God operative in you. That's why you continue to have faith, praise God. And it's weak sometimes, isn't it? But it's still present. Also, faith is not a work. It's wrong. It's a faulty conclusion but it's one that some people reach when they, when they look at faith and they recognize, well, my goodness, I had faith. And yes, you did. And I think this is one of the reasons the Scripture emphasizes faith is because you experience it in a way that you don't experience grace. Grace is given to you before the foundation of the world. Faith is something you experience in life in a profound and powerful way. But it's not a work. And there are people that have taken this idea of faith, believing, trusting Jesus, and put it in the category of, well, that's a work because that's something I do. Wrong! Number one, you should be able to see that faith is not a work from this text. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. Saved by grace through faith, not a result of works. Faith is not a result of works, therefore faith is not a work. Secondly, Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. In holding up the example of Abraham and his faith, look at what he says. Look at, look at this, and this is just so clearly defined here for you. And it's going to be a good parallel to our Ephesians 2 passage. Romans 4, 4 to 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And that makes sense to all of us, doesn't it? You do something, you get something in return. That's the way life works. That makes sense. You go to a job, you do a certain thing, you get a certain amount of money in return. A doctor does a certain operation, he gets a certain amount of money in return. A contractor does a certain job, he gets a certain amount of money in return. You go to work, your regular time, you have an agreement, you're under, it's understood, you go and you do this and you get this. That's the way life works, and that's real easy for us to understand, isn't it? Because it's just built into the fabric of the way the world works. Now, it becomes problematic when you try to transfer that kind of thinking to biblical ideas about the way God works and ideas like grace and faith because it's not always a one-to-one -one comparison. And here's one. Look at it. Verse Romans 4.4, 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5, here's the key. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him. Number one, you see, again, it's not of works. And number two, you see that in contrast to the one who does not work but trusts him, trust is not a work. It's the opposite of work. Again, I'm trusting Jesus because I know I can't do anything to get to God. This is why Jesus came. The one who trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, is counted as righteousness. Grace alone through faith alone. Well, what about the interaction of those two, grace and faith? And friends, there's only so far you can push the scripture on this. There's, there's things about grace and faith that, and how they interact that I don't understand or I can't explain. Here's, I think, one of the clearest verses to, to explain it, Acts 18, 27. It's an unusual verse in Acts because usually Acts is just recording and reporting what happened. Acts, Acts reads like history, a history of the spread of the gospel, a history of the beginning of the church and God fulfilling his promises and the coming of the Spirit. Acts reads like history, but in Acts 18.27 you get a little bit of an explanation from the author explaining here's what really happened here. And this is, this is in the case of Apollos preaching the gospel. Apollos is going around preaching the gospel, leading people to Christ, teaching them. And look at what it says, Acts 18, 27. And, and this, this gives you an insight into, here's Luke's interpretation, the author, the author's understanding of what's going on here when the gospel's preached and people believe. Acts 18, 27, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote, to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Now look at that. Through grace had believed. And in our text, grace precedes faith. Grace leads to faith. Through grace, they had believed. We sing about it in our hymns. 
Our hymns are, many of them, the good hymns are rich in biblical content and theology. One of the ones we're singing tonight, I know whom I have believed, which is based on 2 Timothy 1.12. Listen to what it says. And we're going to sing this tonight. You should come back tonight and sing this hymn. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known. And that makes sense. I don't know why God made me know about grace, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I don't know that. Now listen to the next stanza. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. The hymn writer understands by grace through faith. This not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Furthermore, we understand salvation is by grace, it's through faith, it's by grace alone, through faith alone. It's also a gift. Did you see it there in verse 8? It is the gift of God, which is the opposite of your own doing. A gift is something that is given. That's how salvation is described all through Scripture. Something that is given by God, because of his kindness. Salvation, finally, this morning, in this text, is for the glory of God alone, which I would just encourage you, if you read Ephesians 1 and 2, it's consistent. It's for the glory of God alone. Again, verse 7, so that God would make his kindness and grace known. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. God has... God has saved us in such a way that leaves no place for our boasting. That there's no place or no room for, my God, look what I did. Look who I am. Man, I'm glad I did that. I did this, and again, there's this reciprocal idea of I did that, and because I did that, God did his part. Salvation is for the glory of God alone in such a way that it leaves no place for human boasting. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. Friends, I mean, what do you do if you receive an amazing gift? If you receive an incredible gift, what do you do? Well, usually you praise the giver. My goodness. This guy gave me this fountain pen. My wife is amazing. She gave me this fountain pen. You praise the giver. You, you thank the giver. I'm going to thank you for this. You, you exalt, you extol the giver. My goodness, can you believe? Can you believe this gift that I received? That's what you do. You boast about the giver. I think that's God's design in our salvation, saving us by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the glory goes to him. The boasting is in God. It's not about an achievement. My goodness, I did this. Not about an award. Wow, look what I won. It's about the honor of the giver. Now, I just want to encourage you to take this scripture and think about it. Think about the clarity and simplicity of what it says. Read the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Think about grace. Think about faith. Think about 
the gift of God. Do you know where that leaves you? Again, if you start at the fountainhead and just think about grace, do you know where it leaves you? It leaves you with blessed be God. Which incidentally is how Ephesians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 3 begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it leaves you. Praising God because of salvation. Now, two points of application. Two points of application. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? And most of you know, this time of the year, Reformation Day, I mean, he was playing my song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, I, I can't help but think of men from the past who were used by God to make these truths known to the world, especially Martin Luther and John Calvin. Look at what Calvin says. Now, Calvin, what I'm going to quote from is this is a letter he wrote to the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. And in this letter, he's trying to explain, here's why we need reformation in the church. It's, the name of the letter is The Necessity of Reforming the Church. That's kind of what it's known for. It's really about a four-line title, but that's the shortened form. Look what he says in this letter, and don't go to sleep. Who can deny that men are laboring under a kind of delirium which they suppose that they procure eternal life by the merit of their works. And that's 1523, I believe, maybe 1529, I can't remember. It's 1500s. A delirium. People are laboring under thinking they do something and then because of what they do, God gives them salvation. Calvin, I think, rightly calls it delirium, madness. <clears throat> Friends, there's people all over the world that think that. There's people in this neighborhood that think that. Um, and, they, and just talk to them. They think of their salvation and the reason they're saved is because of something like maybe their baptism. Well, you don't need to, I don't, you don't need to share the gospel with me. I, I was baptized, my goodness. I was baptized when I was 10. I'm, I'm good now, right? That's my ticket. I mean, I, I didn't see anything about baptism in verses 8 and 9, and you do find things about baptism in the rest of the Scripture. And you say, well, what about works? Well, that's going to be next week, Lord willing, when we look in detail at verse 10. So there is a place for works, an essential place for works in the Christian life, and for baptism. You talk to the people, well, I'm saved because I was, I was baptized. There's a lot of people that are hoping in going under the water or being sprinkled to make them right with God. Well, who's going to talk to them about why that's wrong? Or why is that wrong? That's why the hope today, again, and part of the prayer was that we would be equipped to take a passage like this that's so simple and then use it to explain to people grace, faith, and works. Grace, faith, and to the glory of God alone. The salvation is not about a transaction. It's about grace. That's the fountainhead. And so we need to be able to explain it. And uh, one of the amazing things about, I know many of you in this room, a lot of us have this verse memorized, maybe to some extent. That's a good part of Baptist history. That's a really good, that's a really good part of Southern Baptist tradition is the emphasis on memorizing these verses. <clears throat> a lot of people have these verses memorized, but we've got to do more with it than that. Because there, there are people in our life and in our spheres of influence that they're really thinking and believing something they've done is why they're made right with God. Why they're saved. They think that they're saved because of something they, they think it is of them. 
Or they think it is because of a work. And who's going to be willing and bold enough to talk to people and just make the simple distinctions God's Word makes? And help people understand this is, this is one of the most important realities in life. To be saved, to be made right with God. And not to be trusting in some false hope. That's what we should do with it. Use it to explain to people the simplicity of salvation and give God the glory for it. And, and call people. If you, if you should be trusting in Jesus. And you should trust in Jesus. And today, if you've not trusted in Jesus, that's who you should trust in. And trust in Jesus alone to forgive you. And the good news of the gospel is, the good news of God's work is he'll forgive you and save you. You should trust Jesus now. A lot of the kids in this room, there's a lot of kids that, praise God, we've got them in here. They've heard the gospel. Parents have taught them at home. But if you believed, have you, are you trusting Jesus? You're trusting in Jesus alone. To bring you to God. The good news is though we're sinners and dead in our sins, God will give you life through Jesus Christ. You should do that now. You should trust Jesus to bring you to God. Secondly, the mission field. The mission field, friends, we need to support the spread of this good news of the gospel to all nations. The clarity and simplicity of this message and we need to support missionaries who spread, teach, and preach the message of the gospel. Because in Korea, thousands of people are waking up in the morning and bowing down to little statues that represent their ancestors. And they're praying to their ancestors for help in life when there's a living God. Or in India, there are millions of people who go to temples with statues of all kinds of bizarre creatures and take offerings to these statues hoping that this statue will do something for them. And it's by grace, through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. There's people in Italy that are looking forward to this one time a year. Once every 25 years, this door is going to be opened. And there, there are people that I actually think and believe walking through this door is how I receive grace and all my sins are forgiven by stepping through a doorway. There's a lot of people that believe that kind of stuff, friends. And the Bible is clear. Part of what we do is support missionaries who go around the world and preach the gospel. You concerned about the advance of Islam? You should be. Islam is a religion based on what they do to earn favor or merit with God. And by doing certain things, and by doing enough, and by doing them long enough, then maybe they'll please their God. And friends, the message of salvation revealed by God himself, his word is so clearly different than that, that it's not of works, as anyone should boast. One of, the, one of the small things we do to help missionaries is the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Again, another good tradition. Every Christmas time, we try to set aside extra money, more money, to, because we want to see the gospel spread around the world. So, friends, be praying about that. Be thinking about that. Be planning for that. It's one of the ways you can help support international missions. Well, friends, saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man, not of works, 
lest any man should boast. It's brought to us in, through, by, and for Jesus Christ. How does this grace come? What is the evidence of grace? Jesus Christ, death on the cross, resurrection from the dead. And friends, we have a regular time built into our, our life as the church that we call the Lord's Supper, that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed met with his followers, his friends, and they took this meal together. It was the Passover, a, a, a remembrance of the time when God had previously his wrath had passed over his people in the Old Testament. And now we, as Christians, take it to remember the death of Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood, the giving of his body for you, by which God's wrath passes over us. So that's what we remember when we take this cup and we take this piece of bread. We remember Jesus Christ. And specific things about Jesus Christ, his body and his blood, now, there's a lot of gravity to that because of what Jesus did for your soul, gave his life, gave his blood, gave his body. And that's why the scripture says it's not to be taken in an unworthy manner. It's not just a cracker. It's not just a cup. It's not just some grape juice. It means something. It, it calls to rem- remembrance the most significant act in history, the death of Jesus Christ because of his blood. We also look forward to his coming when we take this. So friends, as you receive the cup and as you receive the bread, you should, should remember Jesus. It's, it's for people who are believers. If you're not a believer, if you're not trusting Jesus, you should do that now. You should take Christ and then talk to me afterwards and we'll talk about how you, the church can help you live the Christian life. Or other people in this room you could talk to. But the Lord's Supper is for, for Christians. Uh, this is why children who aren't believing the gospel or we don't take the Lord's Supper we want them to take Christ it's an encouragement to them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so let me invite the deacons to come forward and be handing this out and friends as you receive this examine yourself and then take and eat of it in a worthy manner that remembers Christ and honors him